You're listening to a medical miscellany, a curious casebook of brilliant discoveries, scientific advances, bizarre cures, and some downright quackery. Dr. Peter Kay and Sean Ait. Episode 5, Diagnosis. Right, good morning, Peter. Good morning, Sean. Yes, how are you today? I'm fine, thanks, and um, I'm happy to see you a bit more energised and happy having come back from the physio. Yes, it was fantastic, actually. Um, I had no idea that they used chilli powder cream to desensitise nerves. That was kind of fascinating. Capsaicin, yes. Yeah, exactly yes. that. He pulled yeah. me around and mm. shoved things. And Did it burn a bit when he first put it on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a little bit... Uh, it, sort of, it, perks, it perks the receptors up a bit before it finally sort of locks them. Precisely, fact. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. He said, uh, you know, uh, take some, put a, about the size of a toothbrush uh, amount on your back. He said, mm. be very careful not to put it on your toothbrush. Or, or your penis. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I choose to do that, Peter? Thank you for lowering the tone immediately this morning. Right, so let's get on with our podcast today, which um, we were talking the other day about uh, the way in which medicine relies a little bit on stories. You know, doctors require you to tell them things, give them a history, etc. And, you know, it's kind of interesting linking that to our um, idea of going back over medical history. So talk to me a little Mm. bit about diagnosis. How do doctors find things out? Yeah, well, it's storytelling is a, important to all of us isn't it we all love stories i remember there's a lovely quote about the, the universe is, is made of stories not atoms which i quite like i don't know who said it uh, but we're all we all love stories and particularly i mean stories is a very important part of medicine and if you think about it when you're ill for example with your shoulder yeah. you have a story about how it happened you know you you, you and you yeah. told me the story of how it happened on the ski slope exactly and then you go to the doctor and repeat the story and that story that you're telling yourself about what's happened is very important because that's part of um, how you explain it to yourself mm. and how you tell other people and how you tell the doctor. And then what happens then is that you and the doctor reshape the story into a, a sort of a more medicalized story. So the doctor will, um, if, if he was then going to describe it to me, right. he'd say, yes, I, I saw or the physio, I mean, he'd say, yeah, Pat might, might say something like, yeah, I saw, I saw Sean this morning. He's having trouble. Um, he's had a, he fell forward in a skiing accident a few days ago, X days ago. Um, he's having particular trouble rotating and abducting his arm. Um, I think it's a ligamentous thing. I don't think there's any injury, bony injury. And I've advised some regular movements and some capsaicin cream to reduce the pain. And a tennis ball. He's prescribed a tennis ball as well. I have to stick a tennis ball behind my shoulder and lie down on the, on the floor wall. and roll oh, about. Oh, that's interesting. It in order to, yeah, to get it to put pressure on. That's on, interesting. On Sounds like a good physio, this one. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so you, you get a story and then, then when that story gets sort of shortened really as doctors pass it from one to the other, so yeah. in a story, if a doctor bumps into another doctor in the corridor, he might have a very brief story about a patient in bed, 16, who, um, 33-year-old female, came in last night, severe abdominal pain, tender in the right uh, lower abdomen, also some rebound, I think it's appendicitis, and yeah. off they go. Yeah. You know, but, but that, wouldn't be the, that wouldn't be the patient's story. She might want to talk about how it started when she was at the cinema and it came yeah. on, she felt a bit yeah. sick and a bit feverish. And, you know, the stories change, but they, they're important. And, um, but then the, what happened, we say, you know, the doctors take a history, his story, the word history is his story, isn't it? Or yeah, his or yeah. her story. Uh, we take a history. The first thing we do as, a, as, as doctors, to, is, is uh, medical students, is to learn how to take a history from a patient, which okay. basically means listening to start with. Um, I remember coming across a, a story about a, a doctor who was dying in a hospice, um, and he wanted to pass on whatever he could to the medical students who came to visit him. Yeah. And what he said was, 
Just give me ten minutes of your undivided time to listen to me and I'll tell you all that you need to know. You know, so that in intense listening is really important um, and it's often neglected, I think, uh, because we're also busy now. Yeah, that's true, actually. I think that's probably what's missing these days when you do visit your GP is the time for them to listen to you. It's, you know, mm. you feel like you ought to get out very, very quickly mm. so the next mm. person can come in. Yeah. yeah. So that listening is important. But then after that, the patient won't tell you everything you need to know. So then you do what's called a systemic inquiry. So, for example, if you came to me with some waterworks trouble, yeah. um, you might tell me all about, you know, what you think is uh, I need to know. But then you might have missed off a few important things like I, I might ask you, does it burn or sting when you pass when you pass urine? Sure. Uh, is it any difficulty starting or stopping? You know, is, is the stream poor? All things that may not have been mentioned in your story. Yeah. But I've got to check out because they will help me to diagnose the problem. Yeah. They'll help me to pin it down. The number of times you get up in the night or yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> million. In my case, yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, in think, thinking about history. So, but also, you were asking me about, you know, how we come across, how we make a diagnosis, and it made me think of the first thing you learn as a medical student. You take a history, you examine the patient, and then you think about doing special investigations like blood tests and checks, test X-rays, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but then I was thinking about the times before diagnosis, because in order to make a diagnosis, you have to have a name or some kind of disease or illness that you're trying to find. I see, yes. But if you haven't got that, you can't make a diagnosis. And so for medicine for a long time, there was no idea that, the, that a particular disease would be, uh, there would be such a thing as a particular disease. It was right. just really collections of symptoms, which was, was yeah. what doctors were interested in at that time. So, um, so they would just literally take a list of things that were, um, yeah, you were experiencing, and then they would try and extrapolate from that and what, what you needed, yeah. what you needed. Yeah, yeah exactly. And using basically using the humoral system for hundreds of years, they use that one system really. What is that system? What's what are the humors? Well, the, the humors. Um, it comes from the the four elements originally. The four elements of. of uh, what are they? Water, air, earth, and fire. Are they the one? Yeah, yeah. And and from that, Hippocrates and particularly Hippocrates and other writers around that time extrapolated it into imagining the body also consisted of a mixture of four basic things. Uh, so it's yes, yeah, so um, it's a sort of mixture. And of if you things, think about it, you know what 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 what's in, it's about all about what's inside the body and how it's all mixing up in there. And we don't yeah. know, do we, to start with? So they were guessing. They have things like bile and phlegm. well, yeah. When you think that you know, we know that you produce phlegm, so that must be in there. Yeah. We know you've got blood in there because when we cut you, you've got blood. Yeah. Um, we've seen bile, um, and we've also seen this stuff they call black bile. When you, when you, if you get blood, digested blood, yeah, and you either vomit it or you pass it through your motions, it comes out black. Well, I got a horrible story about that because our uh, youngest daughter was in hospital um, many, many years ago with um, uh, her um, bowel had been constricted uh, due to adhesions. And there was just some very nasty stuff that came out. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And wow. it's uh, and it yeah. is and it stinks as well. Oh. Um, but the thing is that it, we, of course, being being doctors, we give them special names. So if you vomit blood, it's called hematemesis. Right. And if you pass blood through the motions when it comes out black and tarry, it's called melina. 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 Yeah. Mm, nothing to do with Melina Trump. No, there is an actor. There is an actor called somebody Melina. But melina. Um, yeah, melina. funny word. But anyway, so I guess that was why they called it. Came up with the idea of black. Uh, black bile right and so there was bile black bile um blood and um something yeah it's phlegm phlegm Phlegm. they were the ones and those because they were being used for hundreds of years they became associated with characteristics so if you had a lot of phlegm you become a phlegmatic torsor person If you, if you had a lot of blood, you become a sanguine, sanguine sort of person. person. If yes. you had a lot of bile, you become a bilious, sort of <laughs> bilious, angry person. Uh, 
uh, or, or and if you were melancholic, if you had a lot of black bile, you'd be melancholic and rather yeah. depressive. Yeah. Um, so they, they, they became associated with characteristics. And um, funnily enough, in theatre, you know, if you think of Molière and all of those uh, writers um, in the 18th century, they used that all the time. They used you know, tippy-fissy particular types of character who were yeah. Um, yeah. motivated by a humour. Yeah. Every man in his humour. Yeah, know, yeah. Molière wasn't too um, enamoured of doctors, was he? I think he, he was. He hated doctors. He absolutely <laughs> detested them. Was it on his deathbed? He refused a doctor, didn't he? And um, and also, uh, yeah, the malade imaginaire. Uh, yeah. You know that he didn't think much of patients either. <laughs> really, the hypochondriac. Oh yeah, that's his. Uh, actually, really, Molière didn't think much of people. <laughs> the misanthropist and all of that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I seem to remember he was uh, a, bit, a bit anti-doctor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, so, in that period, you can understand why. If if they really didn't know what it was you had, yeah. how could they possibly exactly, treat it? Exactly. And if they were using that humoral system, mm. I mean, what did they actually do to people as a result of that? I know they bled them, didn't they? they yeah, and they they basically try and change the balance of the, it's all about the balance. The balance of humour is inside. So they've given things like laxatives to make them pass lots of motions, or emetics to make them vomit a lot. Yeah, pacuana and things. Uh, anything that would change, and, and of course. Most famously, most importantly, bloodletting. Yeah. Bloodletting was seen as a very important part of rebalancing the humours. Yeah. And you could actually, it's a quite useful theory because you could really, t you could tap it into what season we're in, you know, what sort of personality you are, yeah. what kind of remedies we've got, what, what I'm thinking about might be. And it's a matter of opinion. You know, all doctors had their opinions about which particular uh, fever or illness was associated with which particular imbalance of humours. Yeah. And there were lots of opinions floating around, strong opinions often about how best to rebalance them. And of course you could give them medicines that supposedly rebalance things and, yep. and yep. reorganise them, yeah. And of course that would, luckily, thanks to the good old placebo effect, which we mentioned before, Precisely, they yeah. often helped, they seemed to help, because yeah. people believed they would. Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. And there's a thing called the spring bleeding. Every springtime, people thought to go, went through a phase thinking it was very healthy just to have a, a, a freshen up, like a spring clean. So you can have a spring bleed. Is there any value in bleeding at all? Well, that's a very good question, and I just... As I was talking then, I was thinking about my own bloodletting because I give blood. And I have to say, each time I do it, I feel quite good. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's because I've done something in a vaguely useful in my life. Of, yeah, moral kind moral, of Yeah, or whether it's physical. But I do feel a bit sort of lighter and... And I think, well, I've, I've got rid of a few calories for, 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 no, for no, 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 no effort. Um, but anyway, I do, feel, I do feel a bit better. So I can understand that sense of a spring bleed, thinking, oh, yeah, I've got a spring in my spe yeah. step now. I'm a, bit, I'm, I'm a pint lighter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but a whole armful. In terms of, you know, whether it's useful, there is a condition called hemochromatosis, where you've got too much iron in your liver and body. Right. And then that is uh, one condition, one rare condition, where you do let blood regularly. Yeah. Um, because somebody's got too much iron and they need to get rid of it. But I assume it must have weakened patients enormously. I mean, I believe yeah, they, yeah. they thought that fainting was a good thing. Absolutely, yeah. If the more you bled, the better. Yeah. And there are sorts of, some many, many famous cases of famous people being literally bled to death. Poor yeah. old George Washington was one of them. Oh, really? Probably, yes. I mean, he, 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 he was in the hands of doctors. Of course, there's a problem with being famous. You get lots of doctors clustering around your deathbed. It happens time and time again. Yeah, that's a mistake, isn't it? Yeah, it's... Um, well, that's probably why Molière was keeping them away. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah. Charles, poor old Charles II had a bad bad death with... Really? And, and um, Alexander the Great said, I, I die from the from the attention of too many doctors. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, even, even more, in more recent times, like um, the Emperor Hirohito. Oh, yeah. 
And I've got an interesting story about him uh, as a tangent on a tangent. Yeah, go for it. Um, when I used to, I used to work in a, when I first started working in hospice, I was a consultant in a hospice. And um, I was approached by a chap called Yoshi, who looked very Japanese, but he had an American accent. He spoke, he'd been brought yeah. up in America. And he was a professional photographer. He's only 22, I think, young guy, but he'd already made a collection of um, photographs, a book which he showed me, of a nursing home in Japan where he'd taken pictures in the nursing home. Mm. And he'd already already gone to a couple of hospitals and said, could I come here and take photographs? And I said, not on your Nelly, mate. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not what we, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't countenance for, yeah. that. But anyway, he was a very charming guy, very nice guy. And in the end, kind of won me around. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. If you come here for six weeks as a nursing assistant, unpaid, and we like you, and you, you, you fit in, I'll let you get your camera out. Ah, and that's what happened. Okay. That's what happened. And so he did fit in. He was extremely popular. He worked hard. He bathed the patients. Yeah, he, yeah. he chatted to them. He sat with them. Uh, he was a lovely guy. And uh, yeah, sure enough, he got his camera out. And he was very sensitive about how he used his camera. He yeah. used it actually as a therapeutic tool. One way, for example, was that he would... Families who are struggling often to, uh, around the time of a death, when you have a photograph, like a wedding picture, you get everybody together, you pull them in. Right. And literally you pull them together. And he would do that. You know, and you get yeah, pictures yeah. that most of us couldn't get because he yeah. was a professional photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he used to get the most stunning pictures. And with the permission of the patients and families, he would use these in his book. And there's yeah. some absolutely amazing pictures. But I remember once, this was before the days of digital photography, I said to him, how do you get such extraordinary pictures Josie this is amazing and he pulled out of his, his briefcase he said that's how and he had about 300 pictures of the same pretty well the same shot he said he picked the best one Goodness. he just had it on a motor which of course nowadays we, we have digital pictures we can do the same thing he must have had a bit of money to uh, yeah. print it well that's it? interesting going going yeah that, that term takes me on to where he got his money from all right he was living in America had been brought up in America but from time to time he'd fly back to Japan and then he'd come back again and he started to get quite regular and as one point I said why, why do you keep going back to, to Japan so much so often Yoshi so there's a remember the family is very ill at the moment unfortunately I've got to be there as part of the family just to to, to be be part of the family to yeah. be to be with them because they're very poorly so anyway this hat went on and on and um, and then stopped and then he revealed that his relative who was very unwell who'd been flying over to visit was the Emperor Hirohito no yeah and he was the grandson of the Emperor Hirohito oh my goodness yeah, yeah his um, and his uncle went on to become the next emperor. Wow. And, but what was interesting was, one of many interesting things about this, he's a, he's a very lovely, observant chap. He said he, he made a contrast. He, he noticed the extreme contrast between the, the way patients were dying in the hospice with their families around them and the horrible, cold, lonely way his uh, grandfather was having to die in a room by himself with a people, only people, certain people could float up to him at certain times, was sort of over-respectful of the fact he was an emperor. And he said he had a very lonely, uncomfortable death uh, yeah. compared to the patients in the hospice. Yeah, well, there we come back to our um, you know, famous people's deaths. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. We have reached our 15-minute total for today's podcast, Pete. Good heavens, that I flew know. by. Yeah, it has flown by for me too. Uh, we will be back soon. In our next podcast, we continue talking about diagnosis, among other things.